Bird's Eye View is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. BaltimoreSportsReport.com. Welcome back to Bird's Eye View. When it comes to the Orioles, this weekly podcast is your official source for lack of insight and for baseless opinion. Today is August 10th, 2015, and this is episode 134. My name is Jake English, and I'm here, as always, riding on the coattails of Scott Magnus. Now, if you're listening to our voices right now, it's very probable that you're doing so at our website, which is birdseyeviewbaltimore.com, where we run an occasional blog and host the podcast. It's also possible that you found us at the Baltimore Sports Report Network, as we are proud members of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. There you can find other great podcasts like this one, including Baltimore Sports Today, which is the daily podcast uh, from uh, BSR. Tune in all season as Scott and I will bring you BSR Postgame Live, which is on most Tuesdays and Thursday nights after the ball game or before on West Coast trips. And you can find the show on lots of third-party platforms like Stitcher and iTunes, as well as Miro and Double Twist. Uh, if you're going to catch us that way, though, please do us a favor. Rate and review this show. It really does help us get the word out. We're available on social media. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash BEVcast. And you can also tweet at us where we're the most active at Bird's Eye View, B-A-L. A quick note, please make sure that you send us feedback on the show. You can contact us at, well, contact at birdseyeviewbaltimore.com. You can even go to our website. There's a contact form right there. I'd like to just point something out real quick. We had a listener named Brendan who emailed us a little earlier this week uh, brought to us a suggestion, something about the show that he didn't think was quite right. Uh, Scott and I talked it over, and it's something that we're going to change and incorporate into the show. Brendan, we really appreciate you bringing that to our attention. And if you find anything about the show to be interesting, substandard, what have you, let us know. We'd really love to hear it. And let your friends and family know about the show, too, because, <laughs> heck, we could use a few more of you out there to be listening to the show. Uh, that helps us out, too. Keeps the lights on as well. Um, helps with the advertising dollars and all that jazz. Well, with that, yeah, and with that, it's time for the most important thing, which is, of course, the drink of the week. Wait, not yet. What? Jake, I'm going to ask you to hold off on your drink of the week. Do not open it quite yet. We will get to it later in the show. This is unprecedented. Unprecedented. But you know what's really important for me? I think it's the time we go through and cover everything in 140 characters or less. Let's go to this week on the Twitters. This week on the Twitters begins with a tweet that is an absolute burn. It comes from not Masson Orioles, which tweets at Masson Orioles with a Z at the end. Uh, it says, on my way to Seattle, obviously an Orioles fan heading to Seattle. The tweet is a picture of a, a homemade poster that says, thanks for Jones and Tillman. And George Sherrill, too. Phenomenal. That's good work. Good right work. There. One question, though. Tweet came out on August 7th. Uh, the Orioles played the Mariners for the first time on August 10th. So is he on the Oregon Trail trying to get to hey, Seattle? Man has places to go. Okay. He's got dysentery to avoid. By the way, 
Excellent penmanship. I'm really impressed by that. Very well done. Yes, that's maybe looks like maybe it could be stenciling, but it's a little off. I yeah. don't know. It's very think, well done. I think that's hand. Yeah. Um, speaking of Jones, um, Dylan Atkinson, you can follow him at D Atkinson OU, who's been posting an immense amount of cool stats. Uh, highly recommend following him. I'm shocked that you love the stats. Go I ahead. Do. Uh, it's been a nice run, but I think I'm ready for at simply AJ 10 to go back to the high socks. Hashtag Orioles. Whoa, 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 whoa. Where are the stats in this tweet? Amen. Amen. Back to the orange. Look, we know what Adam Jones is up to, but a lot of people, especially with the bullpen situation for the Orioles have been asking what's Steve Johnson up to. Steve Johnson post at S. Johnson 831. A bird flew into the bullpen the other day, so we threw some open seeds to him for an hour. He came back today. We're basically best friends now. Mm. Mm. Poor Norfolk. Yeah. All right. The next the next tweet, I'm going to put in the category of dude, screw you. Yeah. This tweet comes from Mike Preston, who tweets at Mike Preston's son, and it is as it follows. Regardless of the O's improvement during the last two seasons, Baltimore has been and will always be a football town. Honestly, Jake, you summed this up great on a blog post at birdseyeviewbaltimore.com. I would recommend everyone to go over and read Jake's opinion piece on Mike Preston. He summed it up quite nicely. If you also want to get another take, BSR has an excellent post from Cody Colston and Connor Garicio uh, discussing all about whether Baltimore is a baseball town, a football town, neither, both. Can I give a quick summary that it will require you to do some editing afterwards? Uh, no. Okay, never mind. <laughs> um, next tweet goes into the category of time is not on our side. No, it's not. Hey, hey, no Rolling Stones in this podcast. What can I say? That's actually one of the better ones. Uh, this comes from The Sunglass Guy, or as people will show know him as, at O Sunglass Guy. There are still too many games to play against the Jays and the Yanks to say the season is over. But time is running out. And this, of course, comes after Sunday's horrific 5-4 to four loss that caused us to uh, pop many of beverages open to, you know, Get rid of some of our remorse and bad feelings. You know what, Jake? I'm still feeling a little thirsty from yesterday's loss. I think it's time we go ahead and pop those beers open. And uh, let's do some talking. Okay, now it's time for the drink of the week, Jake. Finally. Okay, fine, Scott. What are you drinking this week? Jake, uh, I am drinking one of these horrible, horrible beers that you picked up at the store. It's called a Day Rider India Pale Ale. It's from South County Brewing Company, somewhere in Fawn Grove, Pennsylvania. And there's a picture of a motorcycle on it. No, it's bad news. It is... um, uh, It's... um, How do I describe this correctly? It's pretty horrible. It's pretty horrible. I mean, it's, it's beer. But it's pretty horrible beer. You know, I, I hate to do this. I hate to do it two weeks in a row. I usually try to avoid drinking the same thing two weeks in a row. But I, I'm going to do this. I am, again, uh, drinking Heavy Seas Fielder's Choice. It's that short-term uh, offering from Heavy Seas. I, I really like it. You really like that one, don't you? I, I really have enjoyed it. It's a good beer. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's find out a little bit more about it 
with our next next guest. Ooh. We reached out to Heavy Seas to find out more about Fielder's Choice and were honored to be joined tonight by Hugh Siston, the founder of the company, the reason that brew pubs exist in the state of Maryland, a man who has more hosting chops than Scott and I put together as he has hosted Seller Notes on the local NPR affiliate for over 20 years. Hugh Sisson, thank you so much and welcome to Bird's Eye View. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, if you listen to the show, you know it's not that much of a privilege. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's okay, gentlemen. I, you know, the, at the end of the day, everything that I focus on has to do with never take it for granted. Always be willing to to take and make the call. And um, like I said, just, just keep working the gig every single day. The day you stop doing that, you're done. Well, Hugh, one of the things that we do here on Bird's Eye View is we have a drink of the week, and we ask everyone that comes on our show, Hugh, what's your drink of the week? Really what I've been drinking lately, besides the fielder's choice, uh, I've got a little bit of the um, of the Deep Six Porter that we put out last year in January, squirreled away, and I've been really enjoying the hell out of that. So I've been kind of drinking probably that more than anything else. Fair enough. Now, you, you mentioned the Fielder's Choice, and that's exactly why we have you on. We're curious about uh, the development of Fielder's Choice. Uh, can you tell us uh, how the, uh, a local beer celebrating Cal Ripken, the streak, and that anniversary came to be? Um, it was yeah, it was pretty cool, actually. Uh, um, one of the gentlemen who was affiliated with the Cal Ripken Senior Foundation, I had met years before uh, in, in a different business incarnation for him. And he, when he began to work for the Cal Ripken folks, he came to us and said, hey, you know, we should find something to do. So uh, the original concept was that we were going to make a beer that was only going to be released and sold during baseball season. And we settled on the name Fielder's Choice. Unfortunately, it took too long uh, to sort of work out the details. So that by the time we wanted, you know, by the time we had our fecal matter coagulated, for lack of better words, um, it, it turned out that baseball was already started, so we could no longer do it for baseball season. So we decided we would just make it a commemorative, and as it turned out, because it was both the 20th anniversary of 2131 and the 20th anniversary for our brewery, we said, hey, this is a perfect opportunity. So uh, so we, we, we cranked it out. The recipe that we used was a tweak of, uh, of the old McHenry beer recipe that we did uh, many years ago, which was loosely based on national premium before it got screwed up. Um, although the, the new guys did a pretty good job of that. But uh, in any event, so we, we wanted to make a classic American lager that commemorated baseball, 2131, and our 20th anniversary, and kicked in a few bucks to help uh, the Calvert and Senior Foundation. And lo and behold, it all came to pass. I'm glad, Hugh, that you've kind of restored some ability in our taste buds because when me and Jake first had the first time, I turned to Jake and I said, it kind of tastes like an offshoot of National Premium. And he's just like, yeah, you actually nailed that right in the head. So uh, we're not experts, certainly, in the beer industry, but we certainly drink a lot of your products, so we've got a good taste for it. Um, So in terms of lagers that are out there on the marketplace, what really sets Fielder's Choice apart from a production or process standpoint? Well, the biggest thing is that malt lager, so it's not going to be, you know, like um, like one of the majors, which has got corner rice adjuncts. It's got, it, you know, but it's still a clean, classic American-style lager. So if, if you're looking for something that's going to be of a flavor profile of a deep six or a loose cannon, eh, you know, you're not going to get that. 
Right. And, but, but, and again, and, and the beer has been doing great. You know, you can look at it on social media. You can see beers flying off the shelf. Anybody that is on an Oreo social media on Facebook or Twitter is always talking about, has anyone seen Fielder's Choice in the store? So it's certainly been, it looks like it's been a very uh, profitable, but also successful beer release for you guys. Um, is there any chance that Fielder's Choice makes it into the Heavy Seas regular rotation um, it, it, going forward? We, we don't know that yet. And if I told you, I'd have to shoot you. Well, well that's okay. I might be willing to take that, that bullet for the rest of Baltimore. I would know, I would certainly be willing to have Scott take that bullet. I don't know where it's going to go. Um, we're, it's not a profitable venture because we're, we're donating uh, a not insignificant amount of money for every case going to the Cal Ripken Senior Foundation. So, and when you deal with a one-off, I mean, you, you have a relatively small base, in this case, 4,000 cases, uh, to cover all the design and, and plate costs for the printing. So, at the end of the day, this is probably a zero-sum game for us. We just thought that it was important to do both to commemorate both our 20th anniversary and uh, and 2131, certainly, which is a huge accomplishment. Um, and we also are, I mean, you know, Baltimore is our home base. Difficult to become anything more Baltimore than the Baltimore Orioles and Cal Rifkin. And so we thought this was just a perfect opportunity to celebrate uh, not just, you know, our, our accomplishments, limited as they are, but also just the, you know, the, the overall, I mean, let's face it, Baltimore City these days can use an uplift. This totally. Is a good one. Totally. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, uh, the branding on the can is, is pretty obvious, uh, but the, the name is a little vague. Um, were the Orioles, I know that you said that Ripken Baseball was involved uh, somewhat through the uh, Cal Ripken Senior Foundation. Were the Orioles involved at all in this project? Not really. I mean, the, I mean, the, the name came from my marketing director, Fred Crutter, and it was one of those things where he, I think he tossed it out there and we all immediately went, that's it. It's a perfect name. Uh, I mean, if you're a baseball fan, you know that Fielder's Choice is is a play, is a is a call that uh, the announcers make when you know if the guy has a chance to throw the guy out at second or throw the guy out at first, and he throws the guy out at first. That's a Fielder's Choice. So we thought that was a, sort of a perfect name for the product, um, and, and you know it it really wasn't. Um, I kind of lost my train of thought there, but the. Uh, this is just really more, just more of a celebration than it is anything else. All right. Well, as a fan of a beer that well doesn't suck, I, I guess the question I have is, yeah, I mean, I, I've got I'm really pleased going into Camden Yards on a you know daily slash weekly basis and seeing Heavy Seas beer sold at the ballpark, especially since the Heavy Seas uh, tent is right behind our section. So it's really nice just to walk out, grab the beer, and walk right back into your section. Was it tough to? get into the stadium through the distribution networks or has that been something that has really been something you've been working on for the past 20 years working with heavy seas and getting to the distribution networks in maryland we we have been fortunate enough to for uh for many 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 years to to have been able to be featured at camden yards um the, the rules have somewhat changed uh it used to be easier and less expensive than it is now uh, I think that's right now just sort of that's the way the world is. So you you deal with it. Um, the, the the truth of the matter is that if if you're a consumer of beer, I mean, understand that the breweries are basically not making any money being there. Um, 
for the time you take into consideration sponsorship fees, et cetera, uh, you know, you're, you're lucky if you break even. Um, we believe that from a business perspective, I mean, there are 81 baseball games. There's 81 opportunities uh, to be in front of your consumers. Um, if you want to be a Baltimore brand, you, we think you need to be there. So we're willing to do to do the break-even deal uh, and, and just approach it that way. There are other sports franchises in the city where there's just no way in hell that we can get to even a break-even standpoint. So, so we just don't do it. Well, brands and oh, I, I can't afford as a relatively small company to do deals uh, where I don't at least break even. Well, I, I tell you what, from a, a fan's perspective, uh, thank you for saving us from the big three, and uh, may you never leave Camden Yards. Um, <laughs> I'm not planning on it unless I toss my hands down. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned uh, your, your headquarters being in Baltimore, being a Baltimore-based uh, uh, brewery uh, company, and uh-huh. we talked about branding. Now, a few years ago, the company shifted its branding away from Clipper City and reformed around the Heavy Seas line, which I'm sure has a lot to do with the fact that people in, say, Maine don't really care about Baltimore's Clipper City heritage and, and happen to like pirates. Um, but I, I'm curious, was that a difficult transition for you as a local guy to kind of move away from this very locally-based uh, image and branding towards something that's accessible to uh, more people outside of the, the area? That's a really That's a really good question. Uh, let me preface that by saying that when I named, and, and that's still the corporate name, is Clipper City. Uh, when I named the company Clipper City, I made an assumption that proved not to be valid. And that was that Baltimore was where the Clipper ship was first designed and built, and that everybody in this area certainly already knew that. And it didn't take long after I'd started the company before I realized that, unfortunately, a great large proportion of the uh, of the local population had no idea of that particular heritage. So the branding strategy that we initially tried to focus on never really had the underpinnings that it, it, it really needed in order to resonate. Um, we developed Heavy Seas originally to be our sort of our bigger line of beers to segue off of the Clipper City and that, that line took off and was performing significantly better than the uh, than the Clipper City brand. Now, if you are a small company and you have to, you, you, you don't have Anheuser Busch money where you can say put, you know, 15 million on this brand and 15 million on that brand and 15 million on that brand, but you got 10 grand to invest on marketing. It's much more efficient if you can put it all on one as opposed to spread it out over over two or three different brands. So that was really what drove that decision. Uh, I definitely took some heat uh, from some of the locals who thought that I was turning my back on our heritage. That wasn't it at all. It was more a question of, uh, I'm running a business. <clears throat> I have investors. Uh, I, I have employees. I owe it to them to make the decisions that put the company in the right position to go forward so that they can all prosper. And that was a pretty easy decision when it came down to it. It was terrifying, but it was pretty interesting. Sure, and I think if it if it's a move that allows you to continue to make great beer, um, and again from a local area, I, I don't think people in the local area need to worry about you turning your back on them. Um, now this this is where uh, I'm going to try not to turn fanboy. Okay, um, 
because you you mentioned McHenry and Scott watched my eyes light up because that was one of my favorite beers for a while. Um, that reminds you of the reminds you of the ages of, of when you were in the twenties. It's just like ah, oh, I remember those times almost a decade ago. That was nice. So I I, I uh, also have a have a slight leaning toward loose cannon. Uh, my my wallet's mm-hmm. a lot emptier than it used to be before that beer came out. Um, so that that's probably uh, up there in my you know top three or five favorite beers. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a difficult question here. All sure. your all your beers are great, but besides heavy seas, what would you say is your favorite adult beverage? Um, in the beer line? No, any anything, anything. Well, I mean, I've been involved heavily in wine for a, for a bazillion years. Um, with the, with the radio program that I've been doing on WYPR for about 24 years now. So, I mean, I, I, I still drink a lot of beer, and I'm very passionate about beer, but I tend not to drink beer when I'm off-duty, per se. Um, I actually think that that has served me well. Um, most of the winemakers that I know, and I know quite a few, don't drink wine when they're not working. They all drink beer. And more brewers than you realize are drinking wine when they're not working because you have to change gears to stay fresh. I don't think I would be as, uh, as, as I'll flatter myself and say successful as I've been in the beer business if all I did ever did was drink beer all the time. So, uh, so I drink a fair amount of wine. I'm a big bourbon fan. I, I like good rum. Um, I mean, you know, I, I'm a professional lush. What do you want? <laughs> You're in good company here then. Um, I want. <laughs> I want to go over into a side business that you guys are starting into. I saw um, that you guys had uh, partnered with a with Uptown Bakers to make something called Brewing Bread, and I kind of want to talk about right. this this spinoff that you guys are doing into the food business because I I'm actually currently have a job within the food industry myself in terms of uh, offering additives and stuff like that for the food industry. So my question is, uh, you know, it's interesting that a brewery would go into a side business. Um, and kind of partner with, um, you know, kind of a baker slash, you know, local business such as that. Uh, it, that's an interesting vertical for you guys. Is there anything else on the horizon that you're looking to do partnerships with in the in the local area? Yeah, well, there's there's going to be a loose cannon uh, based uh, spicy cheese uh, spread that's going to come out hopefully by the by the fourth quarter. You're just baiting um, me now, aren't you? <laughs> I'm sorry? You're, you're just baiting me now, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, well, kind of. I, I mean, <laughs> look, what, what, what we are all about now is we, we've... Everybody's involved in consumer products. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is create a brand. Mm-hmm. And we've done that. And it's really hard to do. And when you, when you finally have something that seems to be working, you want to find other ways of extending it, strengthening it, moving it forward. So adding, you know, the, 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 the spent grain bread, uh, and uptown bakers are awesome people to work with. And we're working on this cheese project and there's probably two or three other projects we're going to be working on, which are, which are line extensions that can be, that can, um, show up in, in different, uh, retail venues, et cetera, just strengthens the overall brand. Um, you know, there's two or three other projects, which I won't tell you about right now, which we're also working on. Um, I mean, really what we're trying to do is, is, is we've, we've built the beginnings of a franchise. How do we take that to the next level? And it's not just about 
business, although that's certainly a primary driver. But part of it is also about there's this whole local pride thing. And look, my family goes back to 1810, Baltimore. That's a long goddamn time. That's a long time, yep. And it's a long-ass time. So um, so we're vested. So anything that we can do that helps introduce things, even even if they only resonate locally, which I'm totally okay with, um, that strengthens everything that we're trying to bring to the table is totally cool with me. Well, Those are the drive. Let, let me ask you, Hugh, and it's okay to say no, kind of, but are you a baseball fan? Hell yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to assume that you've got deep-rooted Orioles uh, fandom as well. The man's been here since 1810. Of course he does. <laughs> I Look, I remember being um, plugged into listening to Orioles games when Wally Bunker was pitching for the 19, it's probably 63 Orioles. All right. So, so. You've, you've seen the gamut at this point. Uh, how fun has it been, this resurgence of the Orioles since 2012? You have no idea. <laughs> uh, you see, I no, remember vividly the 83 World Series. I remember vividly the 1966 World Series. I remember vividly all those things in the late 60s, early 70s. And then I remember this unbelievable dry patch. And I'm, I'm so totally psyched and pleased. And look, even if they don't pull it off this year, who the hell goddamn cares? I mean, they've been competitive. They're fun. They're going to have a kind of a bumpy road, I think, next year because they're going to lose a lot of talent to free agency. But uh, I, I like baseball. One of the things that's important to baseball, and I think finally the powers that be are beginning to understand this, is that you have to do – the NFL has done a better job of, of, uh, uh, of developing parity. You have to do a good job in professional sports of creating competition – uh, within the franchises, and if, if that doesn't happen, then the whole thing craps out. So you you think the baseball's really gone in the right direction then with introducing things like the second wild card to try to beef up the I playoff system? I think that they're moving in the right direction. The biggest problem that baseball's got, if you want to talk about sports franchises, is that their contracts with the Major League Baseball Players um, Union are, are absolutely hideous. Um, you know, NFL football's done a much better job. Uh, I'm a, I'm not a basketball fan, but from what little I understand of the NBA basketball contracts, those are even better. Uh, but Major League Baseball, I mean, you've got guaranteed money. I mean, I can't blame Peter Angelos if he doesn't want to hand a five-year, uh, bazillion-dollar contract to a 32-year-old pitcher. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure if you've been listening to social media, but the man's evil and doesn't know anything about baseball. That that's that's the story I learned. Um, well, it could it could be. I, well, I've met the man, and I don't think he's evil. Um, but but if I was the guy writing that check, I would not be writing you know five year contracts for thirty two year old pitchers. Yeah, it's a little bit more difficult when your name is at the bottom of that check, and when people don't have to cash that check, then it's like, eh, I can just freeze. But it's not my money. It's like. Well, kind of is your money because you know you're going to spend for the tickets and you're going to put your money back into paying for the TV deals and all that stuff. So, well, there's there, there's no perfect solution, and you know who, whoever is the guy sitting in the in the hot seat, you're in the goddamn hot seat. Yep. <laughs> all right, we've got we've got two last very pointed questions for you. There's no weaseling out of this. Are you ready? Okay. The first of this is yes or no. Right now, today, on August 10th, 2015. Do the Orioles make the playoffs in 2015? 
Yes. Right. As as a wild card team or with a division? I think the wild card. Okay. Now, Hugh, no pressure, but I'm going to hold you to that, okay? <laughs> okay. That's fine. All right. All right. And the last question, and this is obviously the most important question. Hugh, Beatles or Rolling Stones? Beatles. Thank you very much. We've, you've, you are a man of our hearts, so thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for the opportunity, guys. Have a good night. All right, so a few people around the Baltimore area think that there there may be too many people on the Orioles roster, specifically with the bullpen. So we're going to do it. We're going to do a little bit of rosterbation here. Scott, I want to ask you a couple of pointed, hard-hitting questions. Okay. I want to do that, but instead I've got these questions. All right. Um, look, Jason Garcia is back. Yes. It is an undeniable fact. He, he is present on the ball club. And he is not leaving as much as people want to get rid of him. All right. Let's do this. Let's, okay. let's let's have an opinionated conversation here because I'm curious as to where you're going to go with this. The argument is Jason Garcia puts the bullpen in a bind because he's a man that can't be used. Mm. Buck Showalter doesn't want to use him. Okay. And, and after having gotten some flexibility back by jettisoning Hunter and Norris and the starters not holding up their end of the bargain, that flexibility is a must. Jason Garcia is hurting this team. Is that fair, yes or no? Uh... It's fair to a certain regard based off of Sunday's game because of how many pitchers had to be used. Um, but what I will say is if you're going to have seven people in the bullpen, that seventh person in the bullpen really shouldn't matter in a long-term entire season. So the fact that Jason Garcia is going to ultimately hurt you uh, for a long period of time is not the case. Now, people can point back to Sunday's game and say, well, if Tommy Hunter was there then he could have came in the game and we would have been safe, spared Brian Mattis. Okay, maybe. But that's a major assumption that Tommy Hunter doesn't give up a hit or you know he bases Trout or pool holes and Trout and pool holes don't do what they normally do and that smacked the living heck out of the ball, especially on Tommy Hunter who has had issues against power hitters this year. Look, uh, Jason Garcia needs to be up here right now. When he was up earlier this season and only throwing 92 or 93 miles per hour, I had a major beef with him. But now that he's back and is throwing 97 to 98 miles per hour again, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and see what he has, especially since you're only going to have to carry him for another 20 or so days. And as much as I don't really like to rely on the scouting department of the Baltimore Orioles, there has been some pretty good reports coming in from uh, from Bowie with people seeing him rehab. Yeah, and and I, I hate to agree with you in public, especially on the podcast, but let me just say people that, are going to think that we're being paid off by the Orioles here, by the way, because that's all the accusations <laughs> accusations I've heard on 105.7 as well. Excuse me, let me take another sip of the yes. Kool Aid. Hang, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's excellent. That's um, a anyway, lovely fielder's choice. Uh, here's the thing: if it were earlier in the season and we were seeing Jason Garcia do the same thing that he wa- he had earlier, fine. But he's pitched one inning since he's been back—a scoreless inning. He gave up a walk, yes, but a scoreless inning. He also didn't throw a lot of strikes, but that's another topic. The thing is, is that if you're going to kill the guy. Let him pitch and let you down before he, before that happens. I understand that it's frustrating to see a Rule 5 guy up here, but keep in mind, he's a Rule 5 player for a reason. 
The arm was live. The arm was impressive in spring training. And maybe he had the best, you know, few weeks of his life Mm -hmm. in spring training. But until he lets the team down, let's just climb back off Jason Garcia. Let's let the Orioles take care of this. And for all of you who attack the, I think you put it best when you said he's the seventh man in the bullpen. For all the people that attack Ryan Flaherty, dude, Ryan Flaherty is one of the best 25th guys in the the league, I would argue. Maybe Jason Garcia can be a useful end of the bench in the bullpen. Right. And you know, the one thing that I've heard a lot of fans come out and say is Buck doesn't have any faith in Jason Garcia. He doesn't think he has any stuff. But if you go back through and look at some of the quotes that Buck had at FanFest this year, but also during spring training, Buck was really high on Jason Garcia throughout all of spring training. And then, like I said, he entered into the regular season and that velocity just disappeared. It could have just been, you know, uh, you know, a, a blown out arm based off of you had a former starter that all of a sudden was recommissioned to being a reliever. Having to move into that role set can be difficult. Um, and I think it was a situation of let's see what happens. Not to mention, like I said, it's two weeks in reality. It's not that big of a deal to keep him around. And the Orioles farm system is already weak enough. Even if he could be your seventh or eighth best prospect, it's worth it to get it back. You're basically refilling a place that Zach Davies basically left for uh, for Harada Parar. And and again, we're not making excuses for the guy. If he sucks, he sucks. If he sucks, he sucks. But I'm not ready to say that after an inning. No, and not, just like I wasn't able to say, yeah, Mike Wright is going to be an ace after two starts. These are the kind of, you know, shoot at the hips projections that we like to do as Orioles fans. But again, I like to just let it play out. Sunday was a bad loss, but let's not crucify the man especially for a man that never even got into the game. All right, so we're a pair of gym hunters. That's great. Let me ask you the next pointed question. You mm. ready for this? Yeah. Gerardo Parra. Yeah. Has he been the shot in the arm that the offense and the uh, the outfield needed? Absolutely not so far. Um, he's been having a pretty mediocre um, time with the Orioles so far. I think he's posting like an 80 weighted runs created plus over the past week. But the bigger issue that I see is getting away from the offensive numbers He's had some really horrific uh, plays in the outfield. And as much as we wanted to talk about, you know, the aspect of, oh, he's, you know, an average to maybe an above average defender, he's had some really sloppy route efficiency. And I can't, I also want to come back to the one play where he dove for the ball in right field and then he didn't get up right away, took his time and allowed the runner to get to second base. It's just a very frustrating experience to, you know, see Harada Parra out there. It shouldn't surprise me to a certain regard, but I thought to myself, well, if they're getting Gerardo Parra, he's got to be better than a Travis Snyder or you know a Chris Parmley or even Chris Davis being out there. But so far, I haven't been really impressed at all uh, with the defensive a- aspect. So you're saying the Orioles outfield at Camden Yards is cursed? I- I'm just saying that Gerardo Parra has been having uh, a bad 10 days ever since the Orioles brought him aboard. And it, it might be that. It might be that the same argument that we just gave for Jason Garcia, patience, let's not crucify the guy, is something we have to take here. But I think I've seen enough where I'm saying, look, he's not going to be the savior of this team. Um, you know, he's having a career year. The Orioles gave up Zach Davies for him. If he's going to have a career year, why not let him finish it here, right? But he had an amazing, amazing July. Weighted runs created plus. He was at 228. For Woba, and... Correct me if I'm wrong, but the average to good is like 320, right? I think it's like 330 this year, but yeah, go ahead. He had a 509 Woba. It's absurd. But then he got to the Orioles and all of that stopped. Look, he could turn it around. Maybe August would be a big month for him. Maybe the end of the season will turn out to be above average. 
And it's also possible that maybe the rest of his season is better than what we got out of the left fielders and right fielders that we had beforehand. But for the time being, he is not, in my opinion, the shot on the arm the Orioles needed. He's pushing a little bit, probably. His strikeout percentage is higher, too, which means that he's probably being a little too aggressive at the plate. Uh, we'll see if he can get it under control. Uh, but I still think it was the right move at the right time to kind of try to do uh, an infusion for the Orioles. Another person that maybe has helped the Orioles be infused a little bit by leaving the team was Chris Parmalee. But he has chose to stay with the Orioles after being designated for Simon, which I find to be a very intriguing move because the one reason we wanted to keep Chris Parmalee on this team was because of the club control for multiple years. So with Chris Parmalee now staying with the team, um, one has to assume that he thought that this organization was his best chance to make it back to the majors. Yeah, and I would think that it's it's very likely that when September comes around, he'll be called back up. I think he'll be called back up. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Chris Parmalee and Christian Walker um, and how they divvy up duties. And I know you've got a lefty versus a righty there, but it'll be interesting to see uh, how much they share playing time. All right, I don't understand this as well as I should, and so I'm going to lean on you a little bit. Chris Parmalee was designated for assignment. Mm -hmm. He uh, accepted an outright AAA. Yep. Does the club retain his control from here forward? Yes. Now, if he is out of options, which I assume is the case because he had to be designated, he had that opt-out early in the season, he then has to make the Major League Club next year or else this whole thing starts over again. That is correct. Okay. So Chris Parmalee is basically, at this point, a rental through the September and October if we choose to go that route, and we'll we'll try again in, in uh, March. That is correct. Since he has no options remaining, it would be the same situation. Uh, you can't send him down uh, to Norfolk again, or else you'd be using another option. He could opt out, or he could do exactly what he did this year, which is say, I'm going to stick it out until somebody gets hurt, which is oftentimes the case for the Baltimore Orioles. And and we saw it with Steve Pierce. You know, we we saw it with Steve Pierce because he realized that sticking with the organization was a good way for him to stay in the major leagues. And, you know, Buck Showalter keeps talking about being an organization of opportunity. When the rest of the people involved are kind of middling, maybe you want to be that next guy that'd be called up. Yeah, but speaking about Steve Pierce, Steve Pierce has been hurt for quite some time now. I, I guess my question is, He's got to be coming back sooner rather than later. Um, what happens when he gets back? That's a really good question because I was looking at the roster, and it's the same candidates. Yeah. It's the same candidates that have to go. You either have to get rid of David Lowe. Mm-hmm. You either have to get rid of uh, Nolan Reimold. I suppose that you could send Junior Lake back down to the minors. Yep, he had an option used um, this year, so he can go back and forth, back and forth as much as you want. So that is the case. I'm going to throw another oddball idea at you. All so right. let's hypothetically say Steve Hurst comes back right around the end of August. What happens if they say, you know what? We're going to option one of our starting pitchers just like they did last year and get him up for the final week of August and say, okay, welcome back. Yeah, that does sound suspiciously like something uh, Dan Duquette would do. Yeah. I think, I think you're you're on to something. Yeah. And, and just for spite purposes, they would probably be way in Chen. Yeah. The other roster move that happened on Monday night, too, was Chaz Rowe was put into the DL. Uh, interesting situation. Uh, kind of got a case of the sucks over the past few starts. And looking up behold, Mr. Untouchable Michael Gibbons is back on the roster um, right away, basically eliminating the aspect for the 10-day waiting rule that he would have been followed. Uh, but by Chaz Rowe going to the DL, they can recall anybody, so they chose Michael Gibbons. My opinion, Chaz Rowe's not coming back before September even if he's perfectly healthy, Michael Gibbons is going to be up here for the long term. TJ McFarland now becomes the perfect shuttle man and they'll just shuttle back and forth, back and forth. But it'll be interesting to see 
who they could possibly shuttle back and forth with Mike Wright still on the DL. Uh, be interesting to see what happens. And then Tyler Wilson, too, uh, has a possible oblique injury. He could be out for at least seven days uh, while they figure out what's going on with him as well. Now, do you think that Chaz Rowe is an actual injury, or do you not even think it matters? I don't think it matters. I think whatever we have from Chaz Rowe this year is just a benefit, and it comes back to as much as people want to kill Dan Duquette, that is a Dan Duquette picture right there of, look at what he gave you. You were expecting nothing from him, and he actually was able to give you a mediocre positive, not I'm not saying great, but and, a mediocre positive. And at times, like two to three weeks, he yeah. was dominant. Right. And two to three weeks, he basically held this bullpen together with tape and glue. And and frankly, if you can find that guy in the scrap pile, that's fantastic. You find enough of those guys and you get the 2012 Orioles. Right. Like, for example, Jake, in just this partial season he's been in, he's pitched in 30 innings. Jake, he's given the Orioles a .3 F war. There's no way in the world I would have thought that Chaz Rowe would have been anything above an average pitcher, if not a below average pitcher. Chaz Rowe, as much as people like to harp on Dan Duquette as being a terrible GM, Chaz Rowe is a perfect Orioles pickup for the, the Orioles over the past three seasons. Um, don't think there really is any other big roster moves coming. I have been interested, coming back to the whole Junior Lake thing, with the Orioles bringing up Junior Lake, um, not bringing up a player like David Daryl Alvarez first is interesting to me. But I think they want to see what they have in Junior Lake, especially if since he doesn't have any options come next year. And I think they want to say... Is Junior Lake going to be a possible outfield option for us going forward as a fourth outfielder? And maybe make the determination, too, of saying, could he be our David Lowe for next year? Yeah, if you look at it, there really aren't a whole lot of sure things in the outfield outside of Adam Jones. And I was looking at the roster earlier today, and it is guys that are are in the same position, right? They have no options left. They're going to be either on the roster or DFA'd or or not tendered a contract. And so I, I think that, you know, they went out and traded Tommy Hunter for a guy like Lake because they wanted to give him an audition to see, is this a guy that can be in the outfield next year? Our next Travis Snyder, if you will. Yeah. Our next David Lowe, who Dan Duquette assures us we're going to love. I think this is his audition. If he doesn't pass, then it was a very uh, short uh, salary dump for, for uh, Tommy Hunter. Right. And, and, you know, most people are going to harp on us to a certain regard and say, you know, we shouldn't have any of these guys on our team. We should be going out and signing players like Nelson Cruz. We should have players like Nick Marcakis. But the Baltimore Orioles over the past three or four years have basically made these fringe moves, and that has what made them into a successful team. Uh, there's a great you know, article that was recently posted, and then you can find it. And it basically says mid-market teams can't go out and spend those big contracts. I believe it was on Fangraphs. It's an excellent write-up, and it's a perfect example of – Baltimore as a mid-market team cannot go out there and give those big, hefty contracts out because eventually it blows up in their face. To a certain regard, the Ubaldo Jimenez contract is probably one of the heftier contracts they had, and that blew up in their face last year. That's to be seen to a certain regard this year, and we'll have to see what it is for the next two years. But it's important as an Orioles fan to monitor and keep an eye on the peripheral roster and these minor additions. These minor additions with like a Chaz Rowe of only getting .3 F4 build up and allows you know superstars like adam jones and manny machado to basically be raised up from being a mediocre team in terms of war to a above average slash playoff team sometimes it works out some years certain years it doesn't this year kind of not based off the amount of people that being dfa'd but it's not a bad format to play with 
Yeah. I had a, a Twitter conversation earlier this week, and uh, I hope that it, it came across as respectful. Again, we really encourage you guys to to argue with us when we're dumb. had a conversation with somebody on Twitter uh, earlier this week when they were talking about the Orioles being cheap uh, and not going out to get a player like Nelson Cruz, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. You and I were both on record for saying that not pursuing Nelson Cruz was probably the right way to go about it. Yeah. And it would hurt in the first year with the second year of the contract, but not being saddled with that in year three or four was really where it was at. Not to mention, you've got to tip your cap a little bit to Nelson Cruz. Nelson Cruz is having another career year, and there's nobody in baseball that thought Nelson Cruz was going to have this year in Seattle, nonetheless. You know, you looked at the contract situation that was given. Nelson Cruz was rated one of the top five worst contracts given during this offseason. So for people to come back and say, well, look, Nelson Cruz hit 32 home runs, it's not often that a player of his age goes out there and performs like that. If he does it, you tip the cap and say, you know what? We didn't think it was going to happen, we but it did. Wrong. We guessed wrong. But we played the probability numbers, and the probability was he probably wasn't going to have a great year. And you know what? Sometimes it happens. But the Orioles have spent that money this year. They have twenty over $20 million dead on the books this year. Of players they've released. Yeah. And that sounds like... To be fair, I also have an issue with that number of $20 million because technically they've spent that money in terms of putting players on the field. So it's not like, oh, they wasted $20 million. No, they wasted close to maybe more like $10 million. The rest of the time was accrued in terms of playing time on the field. You were going to have to pay somebody either in service time, which is going to basically raise your arbitration values at a later point, but to a certain aspect... It's not really twenty million dollars. It's closer to probably ten. Sure, but for for argument's sake, even if it's the twenty million, sure, right? I'm kind of glad that it's twenty million, quote unquote, wasted dollars, because that means that the Orioles aren't just sticking with these guys because they have to. Yeah, I think that there's something to be said for the fact that the Orioles are willing to part with guys like Travis Snyder that they traded for, are willing to trade guys like Irvith Cabrera, who they gave the biggest money to in the offseason of two point four million dollars, which is you know whatever. They're willing to part with all that because those guys aren't helping them win. Mm -hmm. You know, they aren't going for the big splash in free agency. You, me, everybody would like to see that happen. But when they are trying things and it's not working, they're not married to those terrible players. Right. Which is a difference from what we saw during the dark period. Yeah. I rebel and everything. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. All right. Well, let's go through the numbers for the past week. Some of them were good. Some of them were bad. But I want to talk about Woba. And uh, let's pop in a fantasy boss and find out who won. Wait. Hold up a second here. Give it to me. Brian Setzer and Gwen Stefani. Yes, and I just gotta keep insisting, oh baby. You sure do swing. When it comes to kissing, I just gotta keep insisting, oh daddy. You are the king. Baby, you've got me beat up and down. Yeah, Jake was the uh, the boss again this week. Um, he pulled out the win. Category last week was Woba. Jake, you picked Jonathan Scope, who was number two behind Caleb Joseph. And baby's got to eat. Yeah, baby's got to eat. But Jonathan Scope had a five twenty six Woba in twenty five plate appearances. No walks and only 16% K percentage. Jonathan Scope was on fire this week, just raking the ball left and right, left and right. Um, Jake, his average for the week was 500. I know I don't like to harp on average very much, but still, 
500 for an average is darn impressive. Um, well done. Well done, sir. Yeah, well, I mean, look, Fantasy Boss, small sample size, all that kind of good thing. But again, average tells a story when it's used in context with all the other stuff. Yeah. Uh, in retrospect, uh, Gerardo Parra, uh, not so great. Uh, he was, I actually have him as number six on the club um, with a 288 Woba um, and an 80 weighted runs created plus. So um, definitely not very good. Um, not not terrible, but not, not very good. Um, so with that, contest goes to eight to seven to one in favor of Jake. Jake, what's your category for the week? All right, it's August. The ball's starting to fly out of the ballpark. I'm going to go with power, Scott. I'm going to go with pure, unadulterated power. This week's category, ISO. Okay, Chris Davis. Chris Davis. Okay, that's um, that's a good answer. Yeah, that's a good answer. I'm going to go with. Adam Jones. I'm hoping he comes off the schneid. Look, he's got to come off the schneid to a certain regard, but for the power aspect, I don't know. I'm I'm thinking big week from Adam Jones. Also, uh, we obviously missed the boat. Neither of us picked Caleb Joseph. That's the clear answer because baby's got to eat. Baby's got to eat. But Jake, just as a uh, FYI, uh, Chris Davis last week had a pretty impressive uh, Woba as well, just slightly behind Jonathan Scope. But from an ISO standpoint, Jake, Chris Davis ISO 500. Can I ask you a question? Yes. I'm serious here. Yeah. Is it too late for Chris Davis to be my dad? Uh, Yes, it's too late. Yeah. Oh, with that, we're going to go with ISO, which is isolated power. I'm going with Chris Davis. Jake, for some reason, is going with Adam Jones. A hopeful. A hopeful Hopeful. Jake is going with Adam Jones. Who will own it? And with that, let's go through the not-so-lovely totals from the past week in the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's right, folks. It's time for the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm actually going to start off this week, I think, and uh, go to a person that we generally don't give uh, credit to too much, and that's the bullpen. But I'd like to talk about Darren O'Day, who in three games this week was pretty much absolutely filthy, getting a 10.8K per nine. Um, But this is more of a... Darren O'Day has been absolutely filthy the entire season, and we rarely ever give him a good because it's hard for him to stand out as a setup man. Darren O'Day uh, is an integral part of this bullpen, and he gets my tip of the cap for the week, but also for the kind of the whole year. So Darren O'Day is my good. You know, it's really funny. You and I were talking off mic before we started uh, recording that we we were talking about how important uh, Darren O'Day is as a linchpin down there in the bullpen. I, I could not agree more. Especially when you have to catch balls that are going into the bullpen to prevent home runs from hitting people. I want to talk about that play. Okay. Because as a lefty, I'm very aware of where people's gloves are on their hand. He caught that with a left-handed mitt. It must have been uh, Zach Britton's. So he's ambidextrous. Uh, I'm just saying I was incredibly impressed. I think it's impressive that Darren O'Day can catch things opposite-handed, but you can't catch balls whatsoever. Nah, not even a little bit. Although you do fall on the ground pretty well. I would call it a flop. Yeah. I would call it a flop. Yeah. All right, my good for the week is Abaldo Jimenez. Mm. Simply put, I mean, Abaldo Jimenez was dominant in his last start. He was dominant in a start where we've talked about on this podcast the Orioles are going to need him in the stretch run. He was great in the first half. He had a rough couple of starts. Last start could not have been better. Look, eight uh, eight innings pitched, two hits. He did hit two batters. Uh, he walked one. I'm sorry, he walked two. 
He also struck out eight. But he had a no-hitter going for quite a bit of time during that game. I think it was five uh, no-hit innings. He was really, really on, and the Orioles are going to need that. You have to tip your cat, your cap. Uh, Baldo Jimenez was everything you could have wanted and more. Most important stat coming from that game was his ground ball percentage went up again, was above 50%. When Baldo Jimenez is having a 50-plus percent ground ball percentage, he's a completely different pitcher than when that ground ball percentage is in the mid-30s, low-40s. Also, his smile can light up a room. Yeah. All right, with that, let's go to bad. I'm going Gerardo Parra pretty much for costing me fantasy boss. He's on notice. All right, for me, and this hurts me, and it goes against what I did in Fantasy Boss. My bad is Adam Jones. Adam Jones not getting it done. I mean, not getting it done a lot. Let's look at the last seven games he's had over this week. In 21 at-bats, he's only had two hits. Now, he has driven in two runs, but come on. Come on. That's that's getting us nowhere. Adam Jones is having a really uh, tough time to play right now. That happens. Look, the thing is with Adam Jones is that he – will have great seasons at the end. You look at it and you're like, wow, he was fantastic. But sometimes in the middle of it, really rough patches like this. Totally agree. Um, you look at his numbers, the bad is extremely low at 217. You would think that's going to have to turn around. But Jake, the biggest issue right now why he's bad, no high socks. Absolutely. Okay. And and you know what? When he does go high socks, he's going to rake. He's go- No, he's going boring high socks in his last know. several high socks. First of all, the the orange and and white alts uh, with the uh, socks not back. The uh, you know, uh, throwback or uh, black with the orange stripes not back. He's going standard black high socks. That's not going to do it for you. Yeah. All right, next is our ugly. And uh, I hate to do this to a guy that's going to the DL, but Chaz Rowe was ugly. As much as people want to berate on Brian Mattis and blowing that game, uh, Chaz Rowe uh, had some really poor pitch selection there. Couldn't get that whiff on that one batter. And then allowed a hanging slider to be right up in the middle of the zone. Allowed it to go right down the line. Just a really poor job by Chaz Rowe, in my opinion. Uh, Chaz Rowe is my ugly for the week with a... Oh, let me see here. In three games, he's had a oh, 20.25 ERA. Um, and the walks are at 20.25 walks per nine. So, uh, oh, and the home runs are at 6.75 home runs per nine. So, yeah, the entire week was an absolute train wreck for Chaz Rowe. Thank God he's leaving. All right. I, I think it's really unfair that you chose Chaz, Chaz Rowe. Rowe over Brian Mattis. Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to option to the lefty in the bullpen. We're going to bring Brian Mattis in for the ugly now. Go ahead. Brian Mattis is ugly. There is nothing else to say about Brian Mattis. I am over-complaining about Brian Mattis. I'm done with it. I am done. You know what? You know how uh, Terrell Suggs got his ugly mug retired in the Orioles clubhouse? I'm retiring Brian Mattis as ugly for Orioles relievers. There is no way that you can argue that Brian Mattis is not a flaming pile of poo. During the bevies in the midseason, I gave him the award of wanting to push him off in an ice flow in gentricide because he's that terrible. I'm ready to part ways with Mattis. Buck Showalter brought him in and walked the bases loaded, and I said to myself, how many times this season has Brian Mattis walked in a run? The answer is at least two. Do you know why? Do you know why that is, Scott? No, I don't know why that because is. Because Brian Mattis sucks. <laughs> he has a case of the sucks for which he has not been sent to the DL. Brian Mattis is a failed starter. And now, after a quite successful time in 2012 as a reliever, a failed reliever. I'm over Brian Mattis. You are ugly, sir. Good day. 
So with that, I'm also going to point out that Brian Mattis is, has a 186 WOBA against left-handers. Uh, he has a 40.6% K percentage against left-handers. He's only giving him 0.48 home runs per nine innings against left-handers um, and uh, has an XFIP of 2.20 versus left-handers. So in a loogie role, um, Brian Mattis is doing pretty well. I do have a counter for that. Area. Okay. There's a single stat that you've failed to mention. That is my unending rage for Brian Mattis. I am sick of Brian Mattis. Rage. I'm glad we just peeked at the soundboard there. Um, Sorry. All right. Well, with that um, and a complete disregard for the stats like the rest of Facebook uh, and uh, Twitter, <laughs> um, I think it's time we go ahead and blow the save. Jake, why don't you go ahead and take this one because you're already on your soapbox. I have a very important blowing the save for this evening. And I apologize, Scotty, but it has nothing to do with baseball. Um, Why am I shocked? <laughs> as many of you know, I have two beautiful kids, uh, one of which is having a birthday this weekend. Uh, my daughter Madison will be eight on Saturday. And I wanted to share with you, Scott, uh, and, and all the listeners, as an, an experience that I had this afternoon. Um, Pandora's box has opened. Uh, the, the cap is off the genie's bottle. I picked up my daughter from uh, day camp and asked her about her day. And the first thing that she told me was that um, there was a boy. Okay, you know, she meets friends at camps, that's fine. I asked her about this boy, and she described him as such. Oh, he's just, and I quote here, the cute boy I'm totally crushing on, end quote. Scott, I'm not ready for that kind of crap. This is not, this is not okay. We're not totally crushing on cute boys. That's not what we do here. I'm I'm just not, uh, I'm not You're not ready for that? Now, I will say that I am also somewhat suspicious because uh, this is the same day camp at which uh, I met my wife mm. um, on the same facility in which my my sister met her fiance. Mm. So you know, there's there's some level of legitimacy here for for the program. Uh, but as a parent, uh, a father of a young girl, this is terrifying. Yeah. Well, it was your own fault for sending her to that camp. It's true. All right. It's true. Well, with that. Um, Big series are always coming up now. Now moving forward, you pretty much have to win every single series in order to make a wild card run for it. When uh, you put your back against the wall, they're all important. Everything else going okay for you? No, I'm good. Everything's good. Uh, I talked to Hugh Sisson about his beer, uh, which I enjoy. It's Orioles season. All things are good. I got to rage on Brian Mattis. No, it's been a successful uh, episode, Scott. You got to I'm, rant I'm, on Mike Preston a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. All things are, are, are... Looking up? Yeah. Yeah. It's all coming up, Millhouse. Yeah. Look, enjoy the baseball season for what it is. Like Hugh said, it's a lot better than the dark ages. The past few years have been really nice. And frankly, how many years do we want August and September baseball? We're getting it again. It's pretty nice to have. So Look, I was really frustrated when the Orioles dropped the series of the Angels. It's not impossible, though. Yeah, it's not impossible um, yet. With that, Baltimore and beyond, I will bid you all a fond... I do, I do. Good night, Baltimore. Be safe out there. And let's go O's. It's over. Go home. Go.